Good afternoon, friends. Yes, 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 it is another grand and glorious day in the best little city in America. Thanks for asking. Welcome to the Patrick Lally Show. We're going to spend a couple hours here engaged in energetic and entertaining conversation on news and politics, music and politics, sports and politics and transportation and uh, all kinds of good stuff. Uber producer Dan Peters is here to keep you updated on the latest news and weather. Thanks for spending some time with us today through your radio, streamed live at KSO.com, through the KSOO mobile app on your phone. And remember, you can always follow along on Facebook Live or our Twitter account at P. Lally Show. And as always, we love to hear from you. Well, it's February. You can, you can feel it. It's February out there. It's a good day, but it's, it's February. But, you know, most people think, oh, you know, it's, it's Groundhog Day tomorrow. You know, that's pretty cool. Uh, you know, it's Black History Month. It's, it's uh, Valentine's Day coming up. It's, you know, there's this sense of, of renewal. You know, there's, it's just over the, you know, we got a ways to go, but it's, it's coming. Better days are coming. But for me, what this means is that vegetarian January is over. And you are a better man for it? I think so. I made it a full month, a full month without eating meat of any sort. It wasn't that hard, honestly, to be truthful. And so it wasn't like the detox at all? It just, just just a change. I didn't have the meat sweats. No, I was, I was fine. And, uh, you know, I, I like meat, you know, Let, let's be clear about one thing. I, I, I like it. It's good. Uh, meat's important, but at some point I feel like maybe your body doesn't need as much meat as it once did. And I, I kind of felt like my body was starting to reject some of the, oh, I don't know, lesser quality pieces of meat. You're, oh, the luscious, the luscious and delicious hot dog never, you know, always fought back against me. That I can all, I'll, I can do without the hot dog, I even love, though they're good, but yeah. I love a Nathan's hot dog. Oh, no, no, no Nathan's hot dogs in January. You know, I, I just feel like my body, some of the like, uh, you know, meatballs or stuff, you know, stuff that's like part meat, part other stuff breading and you know suet (laughs) i don't know what's in some of that stuff tripe tripe yes i don't need any tripe filler and uh also and and this is not a shot this is not a shot against our livestock and poultry producers out there but the modern production methods for me raise uh, certain questions about the use of antibiotics and growth hormones and and what the animals are fed and i that's a nationwide issue and i think you're seeing some of the, particularly in poultry, you're seeing uh, uh, large producers eliminate antibiotics without any sort of uh, negative effect. And I think that's good. But it's in there. You know, it's, it's, it's an issue. And it just, you know, what you put in your body is important. Not that meat is bad. There's no doubt that we have deviated from some of the uh, natural ways, shall we say, that animals grew and matured. Uh, you know, when 50, 60 years ago, a pig looked a little bit different than it does today because they've been genetically engineered in different ways to more efficiently produce a leaner pig, you know, and there's advantages to that. But, you know, you just wonder about what, what you put in your body. Um, 
But even when I was eating meat on a regular basis, I had concerns about the sourcing of said animals. That all goes together. There are some people who I do trust on this issue that work hard to locally source the products they eat or sell or prepare. And I I followed their philosophies generally. Uh, But that's just background to say that after a month of not eating meat, I feel pretty good, actually. I feel I feel better. And maybe that was just coming out of the the gluttony of the holiday season, you know, but I feel a little bit better. And uh uh I I I have not lost a bunch of weight. I still weigh more than I should. You know, this is not like, oh, I'm on a diet because I still weigh more than I should, or fairly recently did while I was training for racing and such. Um, but I, I feel like I'm headed in the right direction, you know? And I think that puts an optimism in your head that makes you feel better about who you are, you know, your body image. Dan, he's got, he's got three kids running around. You probably only get to eat, like, whatever they leave behind, right? Yeah, generally that's what happens, is the kids will eat, and then, all right, whatever you don't eat, I get. Yeah, yeah. I, I can see that happening. That's a, that's a very common thing to fall into, and, you know, that's that's the way it goes. Uh, I've enjoyed, but in the last month, I really have enjoyed a lot of uh, rich flavors, which has been fun, and, you know, experimenting with food and different things, because you get in ruts. You just eat the same things over and over, and part of that is getting out of that rut. Uh, I'm a bigger fan of Indian food now than I was before. We have the Sashi Palace over here on uh, Louise Avenue. Or not on Louise. It's in the Meadows, but it's over by the theaters. That place is outstanding. And I've really been able to explore the menu there and taste some things that I have not tasted before. And that's fun. You know, I mean, that makes eating fun, not just utilitarian. So that's been that's been pretty cool. Um, I'm intrigued about what's ahead. I, I don't think I could go full vegan, though, because... I, I see a lot of like uh, elite athletes are doing this, runners, and even uh, some NFL teams. There are people in the NFL who have gone full vegan for athletic performance reasons, which I think is amazing. Uh, but I, I, don't, I don't think I could do that. I, I, I still eat eggs and dairy and fish, and you can make some of the same arguments about those products as the modern production of beef and pork and chicken and all that. So... I, don't accuse me of being hy- hypocritical. I, I know that that is a real thing. Uh, and it doesn't mean I'll never eat meat again, but it, it's going to be under a little bit more controlled situations where I know what it is and generally where it came from. My friend, the Buffalo Maiden, you know, who's on this program every Friday, for instance, she goes to great, she has a, a source of the bison uh, up by Belfouche that she serves at the Sage Creek Grill out in Custer. And she knows, you know, exactly how those, and what they were fed and where they came from and all that. Um, the bison tenderloin she has periodically is a true culin- culinary experience, and I am not going to pass that up. But that's rare. But I am curious, and I think you alluded to it not too long ago, mm-hmm. is that, okay, at midnight, February 1st, you didn't start gorging <laughs> on some some chislick or, no. or some, some tips. No, but uh, I was out for dinner last night at... Uh, uh, Grill 26, which is a fabulous restaurant. Oh, yes, yes. And uh, it was it was a little, there were some really nice things on that menu. There always is. And I was very tempted to uh, do it. But I had salmon. I like salmon and I like fish. So that part of it isn't as tough. It's I will say it's tough to get really good fish around here. You know, I mean, it's South Dakota and that's nothing against South Dakota. 
But when you eat, when you've had the opportunity to eat fresh fish on a regular basis, you start to understand that there's there's just a difference, and that's just the way it goes. Um, but day to day, fueling this aging but largely intact middle aged body uh, for athletics will be primarily a vegetable and legume adventure. I think legumes are awesome. All kinds of beans, 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 musical fruit. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> Stop the sketch. You're getting much too silly. Uh, we've got a great show for you today. Our guests are Alan Aldrich. He is associate professor at the University of South Dakota. He is also state president of the Council of Higher Education, which is the collective bargaining unit of our state university systems. And we're going to talk to him about the assault on collective bargaining that's going on in the state right now. Uh, the Smart Cyclist will be here for Word Friends. Next week is, uh, uh, next, I think it's Wednesday or Thursday, I can't remember, is Winter Bike to Work Day nationwide. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Carmen Toft of Lead South Dakota, which is the group that was put together to promote women in leadership in South Dakota, will be in studio. They've got an event this weekend discussing the coming ballot initiatives where you can go and ask questions and have discussions. And I'll have a P&L statement just after the next break. Today's topic, I'm going to talk about Thune. And the memo. Thune and the memo. That's all coming up next on the Patrick Lally Show. Information 1000 KSOO. 320 on the Patrick Lally Show. Information 1000 KSOO. Oh, yeah, we're going to get a little closer to free here on the PL statement today when we look through the news and find some things that are affecting our world. Uh, and there's a couple things that have attracted my attention today, and uh, I couldn't decide which one of these to sort of focus on, but uh, I think. I think I think I got it figured out here. So first of all, uh, there's this there's this bill in the legislature. I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but essentially uh, there's an effort by a gentleman from Del Rapids, State Rep. Tom Tom Pischke, Pischke up there in Del Rapids. He's a Republican, and he's upset that there's an extra half a cent sales tax on entertainment stuff. You know, like uh, you know all kinds of it's it's the entertainment tax. It's a penny and a half. Half of that, or one cent, I'm sorry, one half cent of that goes to helping out uh, South Dakota Arts Council. And he wants to get rid of that because he thinks that there's not a direct correlation between the two things. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of taxes out there, uh, use taxes and excise taxes and different things that don't get used for the direct result of what they are taxed on. For instance, uh Mark Mickelson wants another dollar a pack tax on tobacco to raise um, salaries for, or to drop, I'm sorry, drop the cost of uh, tech school for students. Well, those things don't have anything to do with each other. And there's a, you know, that's just the way it goes sometimes. That's a half a cent dedicated to making this a better place to live and allowing us to uh, have things like, oh, I don't know, Jazz Fest, Sculpture Walk, you know, stuff like that. And it's it would be silly. It would be silly to take that money away just because you don't think that entertainment 
has anything to do with the arts, which is also not right. Anyway, bad, bad piece of legislation there. Let's hope it doesn't go through. But what I want to spend a little time talking about today, because I was kind of surprised by it. So uh, the Republicans are at their uh, retreat out there on the, in West Virginia on the East Coast. You know, they, they, it's where they were going when some of them were, uh, there was that train accident. It was horrible. But uh, John Thune's there. He wasn't on the train, but he's there. And he told some reporters uh, today, I think, or yesterday. No, it was today. That the House Republicans, this is from the New York Times, Senator John Thune of South Dakota, the number three Senate Republican, urged House Republicans on Thursday to slow their push to release a secret staff written memo said to accuse the FBI and the Justice Department abusing their authorities to obtain a warrant to spy on former Trump campaign associate. So obviously this is the memo that's been in the news. And, uh, you know, Trump uh, says that he will... He'll release it. He's got a couple days. The House Intelligence Committee on a straight line vote, straight party line vote, sent him the the, uh, memo that they wrote based on the uh, dossier. And, of course, we've all been following that. It's in the news. Uh, But Thune says that this is his quote. They need to pay careful attention to what our folks who protect us have to say about what this, you know, how this bears on our national security. And, of course, the FBI does not want it released, uh, or they they have uh, they have grave concerns about it. Um, it doesn't. It's just a memo written by the Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee that isn't the underlying memo, underlying dossier, and all that. It is not the underlying investigation, and it's just their side. Uh, Thune also said that if if you, you know if you're going to do that, you better let the Democratic memo be released at the same time which, you know, is a little bit surprising when you think about it right away. But then as I thought about it, you know, Thune's caution probably represents the division between the House and the Senate Republicans that has always been there. There is a nearly rabid strain among conservative members of the House to defend Trump at all costs. Nunez, the House Intelligence Committee chair, was on the Trump transition team after all. He was also the congressman who secretly went to the White House to read the classified documents and then took a beating for it after that. And it said he was going to recuse himself at one time and then didn't. Um, but Nunez in the House, they seem hellbent to proceed with the release of this memo while a steady beat of the drums of war pound away in the Trumposphere. Uh, you just have to listen to these shows before and after this program to hear that. And that's fine. The goal is completely to undermine the Justice Department to the point that the FBI is disgraced and the special prosecutor is so damaged as to be impotent. That's the theory anyway. The fact that the FBI is warning that the release of the memo is a very bad idea and the Senate Republicans are trying to temper that charge is very revealing, however. That's because the Senate is and always has been, by design, a bastion of reserve. It's their job to beat back the passions of the moment. This isn't actual legislation, of course, but the message is the same. Just wait, 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 wait. Students of history will remember that it was a key Senate Republicans who eventually went to Richard Nixon to convince him to resign for the good of the country. And that may be well, may well be happening here. Um, Not so much that uh, I'm not saying John Thune is going to Trump and telling him that he's in trouble. That's not it at all. But the Thune and the Republican leadership, they likely see where this has the potential for long-term damage 
to a stalwart institution of the United States, the FBI and the Justice Department, that just isn't worth it. And if you do take the long view, they may see protecting those vital institutions of government as more important than the short-term of the day benefit to the president of the United States. So I would imagine that's a debate that's going on in those ranks. And I think that probably was a reflection of that. So very interesting story today about our senator, our senior senator from South Dakota. That is the bottom line on today's P&L statement. You can agree or disagree with me. As always, you can email me, Patrick at KSO.com. Get on our Twitter feed at P. Lally Show or on the Facebook Live and chat with us there. It's always a good time. Coming up after the news and weather with Mr. Dan Peters, we're going to talk with the smart cyclist, Michael Christensen. He'll be in in just a moment. This is the Patrick Lally Show, Information 1000 KSOO. 336 on the Patrick Lally Show, Information 1000 KSOO. Oh, oh. Ah, man. Feeling it. Feeling the Irish. I almost wore my flog and Molly shirt today, but I didn't do it because I wanted to dress up. Uh, This brings in, for no particular connection, the smart cyclist Michael Christensen is with us for the Weird Friends segment today. Michael, thanks for being here. Good afternoon, Patrick. Um, so first question, did you ride today? I did not ride today. It was a little chilly. I gave in to the to the prospect of a headwind going to work. So. Yeah, well, you know, the, it starts off and you're all strong and cool and everything. And then about February, you're like, oh, <sighs> yeah, I'm going to drive. <laughs> right. Now, there are, we have friends, acquaintances, colleagues who doesn't matter what it is. So They're out there. Reading the Twitter today, I read that uh, a particular runner we know of got 100 running miles in this month. Really? And then Cyclist D touted something like 207 or 280 miles this month. Jeez. Way that, ahead of me. That, re- that reminds me. How are you doing on your goals? You had, you, did, you had a good year last year. I had a good year last year. I'm trying to at least maintain that. Was it 5,500, something yep, like that? Yep, yep, yep. Good numbers. So, so check this out. I was uh, my January this month. Um, oh, keep in mind that I was sick. You until were sick. January 11th. So you I were very start. sick. I, I rode 108 miles, 108.4 miles this year. Mm-hmm. And that compares to 109 last year. Oh, that's not bad. So some coincidence, I'm 0.6 miles <laughs> over or short of my last year. And then my running... Um, 12, 12 miles behind last year. So 48 compared to 60. So. Still a good month. 48 is a nice month Yeah, for, you know, unless you're, you know, like a marathon like, training. Yeah. Or something I want to like go that. really far. I don't No, I just no. want to do the Beersford run this weekend. That's right. The frosty four, four, fr- what's it called? Oh man. You made me lose it. Frostbite four. Frostbite four. Yes. yes. And that's down in Beersford and they mercifully take you whatever direction the wind is blowing. They so you can run with a tail. Drive you into the wind and then leave you out in the middle of nowhere to run four miles back. Add nothing. At 11-ish, so not even like the peak temps of the day, no. whatever it's going to be that day. It'll be okay. Yeah. Saturday's supposed to be not bad, so maybe I should do that. Come out. I should. I've never done that race because it's in February. <laughs> uh, but but I could. Um, hey, the, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today is 
Uh, we got a big event coming up next week for the bike club, of which we are both board members, Falls Area Bicyclists. And, I mean, we're associated with it. Yes. I don't want to take credit for it. Right. And that's uh, winter, winter Bike to Work Day. Winter Bike to Work Day, a week from tomorrow, February 9th. It's, a, it's encouragement. It's an encouragement thing. There's not a specific ride planned because we don't all work at the same place. Mm-hmm. But it's, a, it's an opportunity to encourage people to try it once. Try it February 9th because lots of people around the world actually this, will be trying it for the first time. So everybody else might as well just try it once too then. Yeah, we didn't make this up. No, this is an international effort. It's, a, it, it's probably just started as a Twitter idea and it blossomed like those things do. Yeah, so Winter Bike to Work Day is uh, Friday the 9th. And, but it's not just get on your bike and ride. There's, there's other stuff you can do. There's we're, a, we're here to help. Energizer stations. Yes. There's two of them that morning. Uh, Queen City Bakery downtown. All day long from 7 o'clock in the morning till 5 o'clock p.m. Ride your bike there or stop there on your way to work for your choice of free beverage and baked treat. Mm-mm-mm. You don't even, it's not even like a buy one, get one. It's a go get it. Free. And free. it's on uh, 8th Street over there on the East Bank where all the cool kids hang out. Yes. And you'll, you'll find it. Yes. And then the other morning or encouragement stop on the way to work is Flyboy Donuts over here on uh, Western and 57th Street. Also and fantastic. And there it's your choice again of beverage and pastry. Mm. Why are those donuts so good? Let's just reminisce on that for a second. It's a magical thing. I'm, I'm a sucker for an apple fritter too. I'll try any apple fritter just to hope that it's good. And usually they are. Everything at Flyboy Donuts is good. Yeah. I like those guys. Yep. Um, so that's good in the morning, but that ain't all, is it? No, it's not. Five o'clock in the evening on the way home, stop by Woodgrain, and it's highly likely I will be there, and <laughs> highly likely other people will be there too who have ridden their bikes to work, and just hang out and enjoy the Woodgrain scenery and the Woodgrain fair. Woodgrain Brewing, of course, is at uh, Ninth, Ninth and Phillips, Ninth and Phillips, Ninth yes. Phillips yep. the epicenter of the city. Yes. I always have to remember to remind people of that. Yes. That's where every, from that intersection, every street. Oh, is that zero? Is zero. Okay. Every, every, every address then the next block from that point is a 100. Okay. So that's something to keep yes. in mind. And there's no, there's no free fare there. Don't, don't come, don't come without money to that one. Yeah. But uh, the bonus there is uh, the company. So. Yeah. And the beer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that'll be fun. That's next Friday. Uh, Jan or February 9th, and you can uh, you can play along on your Twitter feed. Yeah, uh, a couple Twitter hashtags: Club Fab SFSD. That's Club Fab Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And uh, an easier one to remember is hashtag Winter Bike to Work. And you can join in the worldwide conversation. Yes, I saw somebody once said, "We know that humankind has never been to Mars before because we can't even take bike rides without taking a bunch of photos." <laughs> And there's no photos of people going to Mars, so we know it's true. No, it do, you Mars. don't ride unless you either take a photo of it, put it on Twitter, or uh, Strava. Or record it on GPS and yeah. put it on Strava, yep. <laughs> But don't reveal any secret uh, military bases. <laughs> right. That's the, one of the weirdest stories I've seen in a long time. Yes. That uh, people in you know various bases or what have you, outposts of whatever sort, uh, you know, they're using Strava like anybody else. And yeah, I didn't think that maybe somebody could track back and where they're that is. they're running around their military bases. 
Now, Strava has the privacy where you can black out mm -hmm. huge chunks of places around your work or your home, but people don't realize that or people don't just don't do it. Do it. And yeah. Can you imagine the, yep, that day at Strava where that came out as international news? Whoops. It yep. was on the BBC originally, right. wasn't it? Right. And some dude in Australia or something just figured it out. Yeah. Like, I wonder why all these guys are running around in <laughs> Hamburg on this airbase. Well, this looks like an airport runway. <laughs> I didn't know there was anything there. Uh, the the beauty of Strava, if you don't know what Strava is, it's a uh, you, you just it records all your rides or walks or runs or swims or anything. Your sort of athletic training of any sort into uh, one big feed and you have friends and all that. So it's yep. pretty fun. Social media for active people. It's pretty neat. It and, is pretty cool. And in a way, the basis thing, you know, that's down to the individual. I mean, Strava sure is going to is gonna make adjustments to make privacy easier or more obvious. But, but they're not going to the block end, it out either. In the end, it's not really Strava's fault. But no. They can, they can, they have to react because international news stories. Yeah. Michael Christensen, the smart cyclist, president of Falls Area Bicyclists, the, the officer for Falls Area Single Track, uh, a certified instructor with the League of American Bicyclists. What am I leaving off? Isn't that enough? Proud, proud father and husband. Yes, How's that? absolutely. <laughs> Man. Thanks for coming Best in. family ever. Yeah, no kidding. Be thanks for coming in today, Michael. We'll talk to you next week. All right. Talk to you later. Coming up next on the Patrick Lally Show, we're going to talk with Carmen Toft from Leeds, South Dakota, about a... Uh, session they're having on getting information about ballot initiatives this weekend. So stay tuned. This is the Patrick Lally Show. Information 1000 KSOO. 348 on the Patrick Lally Show. Information 1000 KSOO. And unfortunately, our next guest, Carmen Toft, was uh, uh, was delayed by a train in in the best little city in America. Well, trains do run on time here in <laughs> Sioux Falls, don't they? Yeah. Oh, hey, I think we have. We're in luck. We're in luck. Oh wow, that wasn't bad. That wasn't bad, Carmen Toft, who is now in the studio with us. Uh, she, that, you were, you just about made it on time. So close. So close, so close. She that is, train gets me every time. Uh, where did the train get you? Right outside of 8th and Railroad. Oh, man. I know, I know. Well, welcome, Carmen Toft. Thank you. Lead South Dakota. Thank you so much. So let's get to it. Lead South Dakota, an organization that was formed to promote women in leadership in the state of South Dakota. And uh, you're having an event on Saturday that I saw that looked kind of interesting. Yes. What are you guys doing? We started last year doing a debrief after the legislative coffees, uh, focusing on one particular topic, trying to do a, a deeper dive. And we are going to kick off this year with a panel on initiated measures. Okay, so uh, there are legislative coffees this weekend? Yes, there's legis for sure there's one in Sioux Falls. Yeah, which, yeah, that's the one we worry about. Yeah. They happen all sort of randomly around the state on True. given weekends yes. whenever they're organized but we have several here in sioux falls yes, organized by the league so of women the, voters the, third, the 10th and the 24th yep and so my uh, lead is having a debrief after each one so this this saturday is initiated measures the february 10th is going to be women's health 
And the 24th has not been set, but based on the barrage of new bills that came out today, my guess is going to be a social justice slant on that one. Okay. So the legislative coffee is at the downtown Holiday Inn this year? Yes, Okay. Um, And as I said, they're uh, organized by the League of Women Voters and moderated. Do you know what time? It's like nine, isn't it? Nine to 11, something like that. That's usually... So, yes, I'm yes. almost certain it's 9 to 11. And then what time does your thing start? 12.30. 12.30. And it okay. is at the History Club, which is on Phillips Avenue. Yep. And you'll come early because it's on-street parking, and that's um, kind of tricky. But we do have some snacks. Oh, snacks. Snacks. Um, because that's how you throw an event. You have snacks. Mm-hmm. And our panelists are going to be um, Jeff Hansen, who, as with um, Think PR, and he worked on mm-hmm. the initiated measure 22 in 2016. Mm-hmm. Shannon Stevens, um, who I believe started on initiated measures with the South Dakota Campaign for Healthy Families, as did I, and uh, but then also worked for Media One and, and did a couple other um, initiated measures through there. And uh, Roxanne Hammond, who's an attorney actually out of Peer, who will be joining us, and she's going to be able to speak to the um, current legislation and the intricacies and legal stuff that I don't know. So we're gonna you're going to talk about ballot initiatives. Mm-hmm. And right now there's, I can't even remember how many, four or five for sure, right? That have been turned in and are certified. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, there's there's W, mm-hmm. right? I'm with, not going to know these, so I'm going to go Okay, yes, that's okay. I'm trying to remember right. myself. <laughs> w, which I think is the reiteration of the uh, 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 IM22. Okay. I think that's right. Then the other ones I don't remember. But there's one, to the, I believe there'll be the... Out of state money in ballot initiatives from yes from House Speaker Mark Mickelson yeah um, there's some others do you yes. remember what the rest of them are I don't <laughs> I really don't I know there's a ton of them but then yep. what we're also what we're going to be focusing on uh, are all of the bills currently up in the legislature that would impact I the see. initiated measure so that would process. have to do with uh, uh, the, uh, consti- the the constitutional amendments. Because one of the proceed, one that of the, was one of them. Yes, there's a couple of bills. One that would basically eliminate the people's ability to bring constitutional amendments. Yeah. Another one that would require um, the legislature to approve voter-approved le- uh, constitutional amendments, mm-hmm. and one that would require 55 percent vote for constitutional amendments. Those are the ones I know off the top of my head. Yeah, there's a whole bunch. I, yep. of course, I have uh, I have an information sheet that I, I dutifully put together before my appearance that I left. That's okay. Um, so, away, but I had, a, there's also, there's a ton of them. Yeah, so the, um, what's going to happen at your event on Saturday? How's this going to work? Uh, each of our panelists will give um, an introduction about uh, their specific um, area of expertise. And then we have a Q&As. And so people will be audience participation and uh, we will do our best um, to answer those questions as they come up. Because it's, if you're trying to limit democracy, which some of these feel like they are, uh, we want to make sure that everyone is aware of kind of what's happening because things are happening in the legislature and things are happening on the ballot and they will affect each other. It's a lot. It's a lot. And then if one of them gets put during the primary instead of the the November vote, like that's going to really affect voter turnout and um, all those issues. And so part of what leads original mission was to engage um, more women in the political process and and voting and being aware is absolutely part of that. Is this going to be a bunch of uh, whiny knee jerk liberals crying in their uh, teacups? 
No. Oh, okay. I, well, we'll have coffee. I don't think we'll serve tea. <laughs> uh, we, we ended up with about 50 people. Um, last year, last year we talked about um, education, women's health, mm-hmm. and social justice. So it's kind of if this is a, a topic that you're interested in or if you're just on a, a civics high from that legislative coffee, <laughs> Get over like, let's there. keep this party going and head go. to the history club. It's a big day of a big day of civic engagement for the good people of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Absolutely. Carmen Toft, she is with Lead South Dakota and they have the event. It's at the History Center it used to be the it's called Women's History or just the History Center. I the History Club. The History is Club what it says on the internet it used to be a Women's History Club, uh, but it's Maybe at, they uh, wanted to be more inclusive. Yeah, there Patrick. you go. It's right next to Lion Park mm-hmm. on Phillips Avenue at 14th Street, roughly. Uh, Carmen, good luck on Saturday. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on. This is the Patrick Lally Show. Information 1000 KSOO. This is a public service announcement. Three fifty-eight on the Patrick Lally Show. Information one thousand KSOO. Coming up in the second hour, we're going to talk to Alan Aldrich about collective bargaining at the university level. It's going to be fun. Stay tuned. This is the Patrick Lally Show. Information one thousand KSOO. Four fourteen on the Patrick Lally Show. Information one thousand KSOO. Just a little bit of the boys in the band from Rich Show there for our next guest, who is Alan Aldrich. He is uh, from the University of Professor. He's associate associate professor at uh, USD and also the president of the Council of Higher Education for the State of South Dakota. Mr. Aldrich, thank you very much for coming all the way up uh, from Vermilion. Uh, you're most welcome, Patrick. I'm happy to be here. So um, we have been talking on this program for um, a few days, uh, you know, a couple of weeks now, about some of the action in peer regarding collective bargaining and uh, uh, for university faculty. And you are involved in that with the Council on Higher Education, uh, often called COHE, C-O-H-E. Uh, clever there, COHE. Um, but it's... Uh, that is the organization that represents the faculty, as I said. What, tell us, I don't think people know anything about COHE and the fact that how the, what the relationship is with the regents, with the state. How does this work? Okay, uh, two quick points, Patrick, if I may. First, we appreciate your show taking the time to have this conversation because unions in many ways are about conversation. But my second point is it's also very important for your listeners to understand that while I'm an employee of the Board of Regents, I'm speaking as an individual, not as any kind of representative for my institution or the board, but I am here speaking in my capacity as the statewide COE president and also as a board member of the South Dakota Education Association. So, and we had uh, Mary J. McCorkle on um, Tuesday. And we were talking a little bit about that. So you, that COHE is uh, an affiliate at some measure or or a part of the South Dakota Education Association, correct? That's correct. We're affiliated with both the South Dakota Education Association and also the National Education Association or NEA. Why is it separate? I mean, why do you have a a different, you know, name and all that? Well, in many ways, uh, 
the mission of collective bargaining is similar in principle, but in practice it's very different because we're dealing with higher ed faculty at the university systems, and they have different uh, teaching needs, different work needs than uh, our wonderful teachers in the K through 12 system. So I think that's the difference. Yeah, and so you just bargain separately with different entities. That's correct. Um, what uh, What's your role at the university? Uh, uh, how long have you been there, and how did you end up in Vermilion? Well, those are all good questions. I've been there far longer than I thought I would be. It's been a wonderful 13-year ride. I'm an associate professor, and I'm a member of the faculty in the library, the ID Weeks Library at the university. And I ended up in Vermilion because when I interviewed here, I was actually at the top of several very prestigious university search lists, but I found the working conditions would enable me to do the kind of research and teaching that I'm interested in doing and have been able to do successfully for 13 years. And what is that? What is it the research and, and teaching you're involved with? Well, the teaching I'm involved with, I used to be a professor of communication studies. And when I went into the library and information world, I love teaching. So I still get to work with students on a regular basis, helping them learn how to do research, uh, how to find and manage information. And then my research covers the areas of the human technology interface, uh, working with indigenous people and different teaching strategies to bridge those cultural divides. Well, that's and fascinating. It's, and it has to have changed a lot since you, because how long you been, have you been teaching? Oh gosh, I've been teaching since about 1991. So and yeah, lots of things have changed. That's like pre-internet, man. Or before we actually knew what the internet was for well, us I lay people. I remember ditto paper. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I remember uh, MS-DOS prompts. That was a different deal. Um, uh, so, memory lane. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, so you, uh, how did you end up, have you always been involved with Kohi or how long have you been involved with Kohi? I've been involved with Kohi uh, since my first year at the University of South Dakota. And you, how long have you been president of the South Dakota division? Uh, I was the local chapter president for the University of South Dakota chapter for six years. And then I'm currently serving as the statewide president. And this is my first year. And so you have, have you been involved with negotiations uh, with the, tell us how that works. Who, who do you really represent and who do you negotiate with? Okay. Well, first off, it's a little bit of legal jargon and it's real simple. It's called unit members or unit eligible members. And that's an important distinction because I don't represent all of the faculty at the higher ed schools. For example, the medical school at the University of South Dakota, the law school, uh, none of those entities are part of the collective bargaining unit. Really? So they're, to they're totally separate. Interesting. So it's, but it's everybody in the state not in those two professional schools or are there other professional schools that are also not included? Uh, I'd have to look at appendix yeah. a, which articulates who's not included, but yeah. the, the bargaining unit also excludes administrative positions, department chairs, deans, provost, and so forth. So how many members are there? Oh gosh, we have about, I'm going to take a guess and say there's probably about 375 unit members at USD, uh, probably a, slightly greater number at Brookings. So there's probably about a total of maybe 1,500 people that are uh, unit members that we represent. Now, those are the people that are covered. Do those people all paid? Are those dues-paying members or are those just no, the those people? are unit-eligible members. I see. So you don't have to be a member of the actual COHE to be covered by the contract. Well, we're a right-to-work state. 
Right. So that's what that that's how that works. So how many of those folks are dues paying members? Do you think? Uh, I would say about about fifteen percent. Mm-hmm. That's not at most. That's not out of line with a lot of uh, workplace unions in the state of South Dakota. Uh, that's correct, yeah. or in any other right to work state. Right. Um, so, what's you're you're working under contract right now for these fifteen hundred or so uh, uh, higher education employees? What? When did that contract go into place? Do you have to do it annually? How does that work? Okay, we're on a three-year negotiating cycle. So this agreement that was uh, negotiated between the Board of Regents and the Council of Higher Education, that took effect after ratification in July 2016, and it's up for renegotiation in July 2019. So it's a three-year cycle. When do you start that process? Uh, We'll start the process, preparing for the process this summer. And then we'll reach out to the Board of Regents uh, negotiating team and come up with a negotiating schedule that will probably start in the, the late fall and carry over into the following spring. It's important to note here, you're negotiating with the Board of Regents, not the state of South Dakota, essentially. That's, that's correct. So, But the Board of Regents uh, are the representatives tasked with the state of South Dakota for but they don't, they don't determine how much money you get. No, uh, salaries is not part of the negotiations. Why is that? Uh, I don't know why, uh, historically the salaries have always been kept out of it. However, we do, uh, have in the contract, the different salary allocations, it's a merit-based system. And so there is negotiation on the percentages within the merit-based system. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Alan W. Aldrich, he's associate professor at the University of South Dakota and state president for the Council of Higher Education. So these, the how does that work? So you negotiate the structure of the pay scale, but not the pay in particular, or explain that to me. Uh, I don't think I'd say structure of the pay scale. We don't negotiate salaries at all. That what we do negotiate is the, uh, elements or the structure of the merit pay system. And, and frankly, that system has been fixed in place long enough that there really isn't much negotiation that, uh, occurs with that. So if I'm an incoming, um, newly minted PhD from wherever, and I'm going to be, you know, associate professor of biology or whatever. How does that, how do, how's it determine what I'm paid? Is that just whatever they just like, they're going to offer me 60,000 a year plus on a nine month contract. And that's how it works. Uh, well, there's many ways it can be determined. There's a salary survey done across higher ed institutions called the Oklahoma salary survey. And that is used as a benchmark by many higher ed institutions, including the Board of Regents institutions. So in the state of South Dakota, we'll look at the average salary for that professor of biology or professor of English or professor of history or library faculty member. And we'll look at the salaries of the current faculty in place. And then the administration will say to the department, this is how much money you have to work with. And then so, an offer gets made. So the, the, the regents really aren't determining like every salary of every faculty member. Is that decision made more on the local university level because they have a pool of money? I can't speak to that because I don't know the inner workings of the regents. Hmm. Uh, there is a pool of money that is allocated, I believe, by the regents when they get the pool, when they get the money from the state, mm-hmm. uh, they will have an allocation sent out to each university and then i believe the university administrations it's up to them to manage that money how much how much flexibility is there if you you have these guidelines 
Um, do they are do they basically pay near those guidelines, or is South Dakota just lower? They benchmark it sort of. Okay, we're South Dakota. We look at this number and we start at at eighty percent of that number. I can't answer the question the way you're asking it yeah. because I can't input motive or decision-making processes. I do know that on the average, we are below, well below the Oklahoma uh, salary threshold. I see. So uh, and it varies by discipline. Yeah. So that's not a minimum by any, any measure. It's an average. Uh, it's an average. Yeah. Okay. Um, but it gives, it does give uh, administrators and, and COHE members some idea of what a position could pay or should pay. That's correct. It's a general guideline. So it's not just, my point being is it, they don't, they aren't paying. I mean, they can pay different professors, different amounts of money based on time and everything else, but there is some general smoothing off of the edges of the differences. Uh, sometimes those edges get rough. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Cause you also have salary inversion and compression issues where the longer you remain at a place, mm -hmm. you're going to get lower percentages of pay increase compared to a new hire because the market is saying, here's the market for new hires. Mm -hmm. And we see that in private industry where people change jobs in order to get pay raises. Mm, I so, see. Yep. you know, there is some money set aside to try to mitigate that imbalance, but that imbalance is always present somewhere. We're going to take a break real quickly for the news and weather, and we'll be right back with Alan W. Aldrich. He is associate professor at the University of South Dakota and state president for the Council of Higher Education. This is the Patrick Lally Show on Information 1000 KSOO. Four thirty-four on the Patrick Lally Show, Information 1000 KSOO. And we continue our conversation with Alan Aldrich. He is associate professor at the University of South Dakota in the, in the ID Weeks library. And he is state president of the Council of Higher Education, which is the organization that is the collective bargaining unit for the faculty at the six, five, six, six public universities in the state of South Dakota. Um, Alan, so we talked a little bit about uh, that pay is not one of the things that you negotiate, which is different from what the, the, the K through 12 local units do. What, what does your negotiation end up falling out? Cause you got the contract there. It's a hundred pages or so. It's, it's a significant document. What sorts of things get hammered out in that negotiation? Well, let's look at the phrase collective bargaining. It has the word collective in it. And a collective means you've got at least two people or maybe two sides coming together and engaging in communication, engaging in back and forth discussion. And so in many ways, the agreement we negotiate every three years, a lot of it is about communication, uh, who communicates what, how it gets communicated. If there's disagreements, how do those disagreements get managed? So really this document is a document about managing communication between administration and faculty. Like, give us a, a hard, real-world example of the kind okay. of things that get, get that you end up negotiating with. Well, faculty annual evaluations, because the annual evaluation ratings that every faculty member gets has a direct bearing on the percentage of pay increase within the merit-based system. So a faculty member receives an evaluation. Uh, they think 
that they should be rated higher because they've had three publications instead of being rated as average. And so the contract has a resolution means by which the faculty member can raise these issues with their administrator, with their chair or dean, and ways in which you can communicate upwards all the way up to the president if, if need be. So again, it's a form of communication that helps resolve conflicts, not generate them. But ultimately does uh, affect as you say, the bottom line for that individual. Absolutely. That's, that's why the communication is so important. Yeah. And I imagine that in a higher education setting uh, versus K through 12, there are a lot more of those kinds of conversations, whether it, you know, deals with their evaluation or uh, the other elements that go into being a, uh, a, higher, a professor of whatever, um, from, you know, tenure to um, um, uh, sabbaticals to, is that, is that all part of the negotiation, how that system works? Uh, that is correct. For example, there's a chapter on the promotion and tenure process, and it's a very rigorous process. It's very well laid out in the agreement for the most part. And that's coupled with annual evaluation standards that are specific to each department. So history will have a different set of standards than English, mm. than biology, than communication studies. Are, do, though, do your contracts for South Dakota, do they vary much in principle from other states? I can't answer that. I haven't really spent time looking at other mm. states. Interesting. Um, and one of the reasons, and we're talking with Alan Aldrich, he's a, president of the Council of Higher Education in South Dakota, which is the collective bargaining unit for the universities. Um, and the reason, uh, going back to our original purpose of having, having, having Alan on, other than it's just interesting, is that in the legislature right now, there are uh, a collection of bills forwarded by House Speaker Mark Mickelson that deal with collective bargaining at the various levels of education. And we've been talking about it on this show. Uh, we had Mary J. Uh, McCorkle on on Tuesday and we were talking about it um, because there is the thing that applies directly to higher education is basically eliminating collective bargaining for the university system um, my suspicion is that you are not in favor of that particular piece of legislation oh absolutely not I think it's a mistake and it's a mistake for several reasons but let's ask the listeners what is being fixed by this absolutely nothing. You're simply exchanging one form of communication for another much narrower form of communication, which is administration by fiat, where the administrator says, I get to determine everything and you're going to do it. What collective bargaining does when both sides work together is it helps prevent bad decisions or decisions made too quickly. And indeed, this agreement has provisions throughout the agreement that allow for both sides to come together and say, you know, we didn't get that right in the last negotiation. It's creating issues. Let's come together and agree to renegotiate and fix that section of the agreement. Did the speaker consult you at all on this? Uh, he did not reach out to me. I spoke with him at a board of regents function and laid out some of my arguments uh, against uh, his proposed bill. And of course, it hadn't been submitted yet. So it was simply discussion at that point. Uh, he listened, but obviously he chose to move forward. His uh, reaction, and I have not spoken with him directly, but from what I read, he thinks that this will make us uh, more nimble to be able to, I, I think, react to changes in uh, the workplace 
business conditions, um, workforce development, that sort of thing. Um, I'm sure you've seen the same statements. How do you respond to that? Because being nimble and being able to respond to changes in, in the world are important. I mean, that is important. But are we not nimble now? Or how do you take that? Well, it depends on how you define or describe nimbleness. Let's keep in mind that one of the most important nimbleness we need is having faculty with sharp minds and strong education and are nimble enough to make the different connections that they're then applying in their research and teaching their students. So we need a nimbleness of minds as well as a nimble organization. But eliminating or changing the collective bargaining scene in any direction you might choose does not impact nimbleness. Think about it. We have a board of regents appointed by the governor, and their job is to provide oversight to a very complex system of six universities and the two special schools for the blind and the deaf. That oversight provision uh, takes away a lot of nimbleness that's being talked about, and that is not anything that collective bargaining impacts. If you look at the Board of Regents and look at the minutes of their meetings, they're constantly making changes. Faculty are constantly being asked to make changes to the curriculum, to adopt new teaching methods, online learning. And so I would argue the nimbleness is there. And frankly, it is supported by the collective bargaining, not hindered by it. Did the speaker in your conversation with him indicate at all what, his, what was driving his, his uh, idea? Uh, primarily the premise of nimbleness. And I pointed out to the speaker that uh, the Board of Regents is not nimble by design because it has all the oversight requirements that the state imposes. And it's ironic that we have a state legislator intent on even hanging more authority away from the regents, such as with tuition increases. So again, they're saying that we remove collective bargaining gives nimbleness. It doesn't. Well, and it wouldn't save us money, right? I mean, getting rid of the, the, the higher education union, you don't negotiate pay. Well, I think the expenses would increase because the union and the administration working collectively, and again, that's part of collective bargaining, we facilitate a lot of things working together that might cost money if they didn't have the union providing this service that essentially is free to the administration. The administration does not pay for the union in any way, shape, or form. And so we facilitate, facilitate a lot of things, including coming to agreements on working conditions, uh, changes in policies. And remember, it's also a means by which the administration can hear what's the sentiment, what's the faculty thinking, and if there's an idea that needs to be questioned, either side's in a position to call it out for questioning, where it wouldn't happen if you didn't have collective bargaining. What's your relationship with the regents in terms of COHE? Is it, is it, uh, is there tension there? How, how would you characterize your relationship with the regents right now? Uh, I don't think there's tension as much, but you got to realize that I don't work directly with the regents. Mm -hmm. uh, I tend to work with the uh, Board of Regents staff in the office and peer. Sure, uh, but more on the collective bargaining yeah. team and so forth. But you're in, in your uh, interactions with them, are they uh, receptive? Are they more, um, I don't want to use belligerent, but do they, do, do they make things difficult for the union right now? 
I don't think they make things difficult. I'm looking for something that, you know, is there some flare up? Is there some reason why why this might've happened? Not that I know of. I think if you look at the board of regents statement, uh, they talked about the positive working relationship with faculty. And I think that that exists even as we go through this process. So no, I don't know of any, any regent who has said or done anything that would indicate that we need to get rid of collective bargaining. I think getting rid of it makes their job tougher. We're going to come right back and continue our conversation with Alan Aldrich. He's the president for the Council of Higher Education, which is the bargaining unit for uh, the university faculty in South Dakota. This is the Patrick Lally Show on Information 1000 KSOO. 448 on the Patrick Lally Show, Information 1000 KSOO. And we are chatting with Alan Aldrich. He is the president of the Council of Higher Education in South Dakota, which is the collective bargaining unit for the university faculty. And we are doing that because there are there's a bill that would eliminate collective bargaining that is backed by House Speaker Mark Mickelson. Um, what would this do if collective bargaining is eliminated? What does that mean for trying to bring in faculty? Because my sense is that's already kind of hard. Well, Patrick... I don't have a crystal ball, but I think we can just use some common sense. If you were to go to the Legislative Research Council, there's a House Concurrent Resolution 1001, and this resolution is asking the state to acknowledge and recognize that there's a brain drain occurring. And the brain drain that's addressed by the House Concurrent Resolution 1001 says students who graduate with college degrees from the Board of Regents uh, universities, they're leaving the state to take jobs elsewhere. Now, my concern and the concern of many faculty, and also I believe the concern of the Board of Regents, is this could also lead, if this bill is passed, to a brain drain of faculty. Uh, good faculty who are here may choose to leave elsewhere, and it's going to be even harder to recruit faculty. Let me give a real simple example. When I came to interview at the University of South Dakota, uh, it was a very positive experience, positive enough I chose to come here. My family's from Minnesota. And when I told my family where I was moving next to work, they all said, you're going where? Why would you go there? Unfortunately, South Dakota is not on the radar of a lot of people in academe. And so it's hard to get the best and the brightest. And when we do get them, we need to make sure we're able to keep them. You don't keep faculty when you have four, five years of frozen wages when you're already well below the Oklahoma salary, and now when you add removal of faculty governance rights, which is part of what collective bargaining is to that equation, you start moving to the problem of a brain drain. And we went through a period not that long ago where we were having a lot of trouble attracting faculty based on pay. We still do. And this would just make that all that much worse. It makes it even more challenging. Uh, it's very common in the Board of Regents system to have either a failed job search where your top three or four candidates all said no, or they have to reopen or extend the search and look at the fifth and the sixth and the seventh candidate before you get someone that says, yes, I will take the position offered. What does that mean for our university system and our state long term? It means in the short term, we're not getting the best and the brightest that we've actively sought out to hire. In the long term, 
if we lose faculty to the other states that also have very good universities, then we start becoming a farm club, simply supplying faculty who get their feet on the ground, finish their dissertations, get their research started, and after three years or so, they move on to a higher paying job at a more prestigious school. Do you think the legislature as a collective, and this is a broad generalization, just doesn't value higher education in South Dakota? I, I think that's a broad overreach. I think education in South Dakota is valued, but we have to do a lot of educating of the legislator of here's what higher, higher education brings. If you look at the uh, economic impact study that was commissioned by the Board of Regents, the BOR system, the six universities and two special schools, we represent an economic powerhouse that brings over $2.6 billion of value to the state. We have 68,000 people, such as myself, who are working, paying taxes, voting, productive South Dakotans who love the state, would like to stay here, and we're bringing that value to the state. You mess with the economic engine and you run the risk of depreciating that very quickly. We've been trying to expand our research capacity at the university system for a number of years now, including a big project here uh, in Sioux Falls with USD. What would this what would this sort of action, eliminating collective bargaining, do to our ability to expand that research? If the brain drain happens, expanding the research is going to be harder because you're not going to have the most qualified faculty that can lead and support that research. Or you have transaction costs if you have a faculty member who's really on board and is making the research happen, and after three years and changes in working conditions that could occur without collective bargaining rights, they will certainly be motivated to look elsewhere and take their research dollars and their expertise elsewhere. Do you think the... Have you talked to anybody with the Board of Regents in terms of what they think about elimination of collective bargaining? Uh, I've had some informal discussions, but again, we are two separate entities, and so uh, I'm representing COHI. I cannot represent the Board of Regents in any way. Yeah, no, I understand that. I just didn't know if you had a sense of if they think this is a good idea. And I haven't well, talked to any of them, and I will. I, I don't, and I can't yep. speak for the Board of Regents. Yep. They can speak for themselves. Right. So you, uh, uh, just very briefly, what do you think that this would do to the notion of free speech on campus and sort of the, 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 the expression of ideas. Well, I don't think this connects as much to free speech on campus, but one part of the contract is the concept of academic freedom. And it is a concept that is discussed. It's part of the agreement and it's negotiated. And in the absence of collective bargaining, uh, that section could be taken away at will. Alan, Aldrich, he's president of the Council of Higher Education for the South Dakota, State, South Dakota University System. Uh, Alan, thank you very much for stopping by the studio today. We'll be watching this very closely. Patrick, you're most welcome. Thank you very much. We'll be right back on the Patrick Lally Show, Information 1000 KSOO. <laughs> 458 on the Patrick Lally Show, Information 1000 KSOO. And it's Radio Clash. That means at the end of the Patrick Lally Show for the day. But we'll be back tomorrow. If you want to join us, Tony Reese will be here to talk about the latest in state and national politics. A friend of the show. The Buffalo Maiden will check in from the Black Hills Bureau for Weird Friends. Thea Miller Ryan of the Outdoor Campus will be in for her regular Friday appearance. And we'll talk to Jeff Turn as he's slogging the way through the, the mess up there in Minneapolis covering the Super Bowl. He's our man. 
on the ground in Minneapolis, ESPN 99.1. That'll be fun. Going to have a good time on the Friday happy hour edition of the Patrick Lally Show. We'll talk to you all tomorrow. Information 1000 KSOO. Whole country has been shot.